0: Welcome to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern. I'm Corey Bennett. Matt Mattern's understudy while he's uh, prancing about the world right now. Um, I'm really lucky today to be here to speak with Dr. George Crabtree. Dr. Crabtree is the director of the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research at the Argonne National Laboratory. Um, I have no idea what that means but it sounds incredibly te- technical. Um, I did take a minute to to review your biography, sir, and I saw that you had 8,000 career citations, 18,000 career citations, and I immediately thought, wow, how does this guy still have a driver's license? Um, (laughs) But then I I heard, uh, you know, it's actually publications, which means you are incredibly uh, respected in your field. Uh, Welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Well, thanks for that very generous introduction, Corey. I'm doing fine. Thank you love to explain to you and your listeners what the joint center for energy storage research is i hope we have time for that to come out during the interview
0: I, I i'd love to know why don't we start with that tell us about it
1: well energy storage refers mostly uh at least our part to batteries and of course everyone knows lithium-ion batteries you're probably carrying two or three in your pocket somewhere right now as i am uh they power our cell phones our laptops our you know everything Uh, And uh, that's been since 1991. Sony brought out the lithium ion battery that long ago. It was for personal electronics. Nowadays, and starting in the mid 2000s, maybe late 2000s, it's been adapted, lithium ion, for EVs. And we're seeing the EV revolution unfold right now. The next few years are gonna see hundreds of models coming out, States, Europe, China, rest of Asia, uh, and also for the electricity grid. So, we're seeing renewable solar and wind being deployed. Uh, they're intermittent. So, the wind blows hard, it gusts, it's calm for a few minutes. Uh, you have to firm that up, smooth it out. Same with clouds passing for solar. And lithium ion is just great for that. So, it, it's finding new uses. The, the trick is that it can't do everything, and I hope we'll have time to get into some of the things that it cannot do.
0: Uh, we will and, and um, you know EVs for our listeners, obviously we're talking about electric vehicles. Um, it's uh, certainly, I think um, in our, in our public consciousness here in California, um, I, I can't uh, throw a rock without hitting a Tesla um, uh-huh. or, or something similar. Um, obviously, there are many hybrid uh, vehicles out there, um, but let's let's step back before we, we get into the, uh, the 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 hard science. Um, um, what led you to um, to join the uh, the center and to, uh, to get into this line of work?
1: Well, the Joint Center was launched in 2012. It was a competitive process. We had to bid along with five or six others from around the country. It's actually one of the biggest research hubs that DOE funds. We're funded at uh, something like close to 25 million a year. The next biggest hub, uh, Energy Frontier Research Centers, are typically five million a year. So we have a much bigger mandate than uh, I think than is normal. We have a 10 year uh, tenure. So we started in 2012 and actually there was a delay in our renewal of about six months. So we end in June 30 on June 30, 2023. We have almost exactly one year to go for our 10 year term. Uh, and uh, we're looking forward to the legacies we'll leave and there will be a recompete. So we're looking forward to recompeting for another 10 years. Of course, we'll have to see what happens.
0: And um, and when, when does that recompete come up?
1: Well, uh, Congress put the the money into the 23 appropriation, but that has not yet been approved. So uh, Congress has to act first. And that's a delay. We don't know exactly when that will be.
0: Got you. And so um, what specifically are you working on at uh, Argonne uh, in the Joint Center uh, that you feel is different from other places?
1: Well, I think the biggest change for us and for energy storage generally came in 2015 with the Paris Accords on climate change. Uh, That was the first time that there was international agreement that we have to solve this climate change problem, and it got quantitative. We said uh, we don't want the temperature to rise more than 2 degrees, preferably not more than 1.5 degrees centigrade, and we have to decarbonize everything, the entire economy, by 2050. Those were the first internationally agreed quantitative targets that's really very aggressive. As it turns out, we only have about half the commercial technology that we need to decarbonize by 2050. And one of the big things that we're missing uh, is battery energy storage at at the heavy duty level. So I think the Paris Accords really changed the game for energy storage. It went from, well, something that's interesting and yeah, maybe you could do it, to, hey, how fast can you roll this out? Uh, and uh, so it, it, it gave us a lot more, I would say, sense of urgency and a lot more purpose to getting it done quickly.
0: And so you and your team are, are working on um, alternatives to lithium ion batteries, right? We're talking about solid state batteries.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things we look at. Uh, We're much more of, a, I think, a a science organization looking beyond lithium-ion instead of an engineering organization thinking, how could we make it 10% better? There's plenty of money flowing in that direction as well. But as I was saying earlier, there's some things that lithium-ion simply can't do. No matter how much engineering you put into it, it's not going to work. Uh, One of them is power, transportation, heavier duty than passenger cars. So lithium ion's great for the 150 or so passenger car models that are gonna come out in the next two years. If you talk about long haul trucking, if you talk about rail, if you talk about marine shipping, or you talk about aviation, lithium ion just can't do it. You need an energy density that's something like two or three times what lithium ion is capable of. So you have to look beyond. Uh, that's what we're doing. There's another example, and that is uh, for the grid. If you look historically there's something like 10 days in a row pretty commonly where the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine so they're calm and they're cloudy they're overcast lithium ion can discharge at full power for about four hours so to cover a 10-day uh gap in wind and solar is something that lithium ion can't do so these are things that we're looking at
0: and so um for for um for me and and those of our listeners who who don't know about this subject matter um what what is energy density when we're talking about batteries
1: great question i should have defined that uh it means how much energy you can pack into a small space so a, a battery actually is a pretty heavy device including lithium ion and that's one reason why they're not so good for aviation you have to lift the battery up along with the airplane, of course, if you were to fly it electrically from a battery uh, source. Uh, and you need to get that energy density up. So basically it means you have to pack a lot more energy in a lot smaller and a lot lighter weight space.
0: And based on the technology that, that you've been working on now, um, how much greater energy density have you been able to um, um, establish in solid states versus lithium ion?
1: Well, and you raise a good point, solid state is probably the next big thing to come along, solid state batteries. Uh, And it will get uh, more energy density, but it's only maybe 50% more or 75% more. It's not a factor of two, it's not a factor of three. So you need to look even beyond the solid state batteries. And there are examples out there. Lithium sulfur, for example, and lithium oxygen uh are two batteries that are capable of much higher energy densities especially lithium oxygen uh it could reach a factor of three above lithium ion uh so there's a lot of attention on that Remarkably, and, and, i was just going to say there are lots of problems to be solved as well
0: sure and, and are um are there are there examples right now where lithium sulfur lithium oxygen batteries are being used
1: Lithium sulfur batteries are being used. You can, in fact, uh, a special custom contractor. You can uh, you can buy a battery designed for drones, for example. Big popular use for them. Uh, they don't have a long lifetime. That's one of the problems, and uh, there's some technical problems too. They they uh, uh, just just making them work, let's say, reliably for years and years at a time
0: and 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 how is it um i understand that in a lithium ion battery there's kind of a, a liquid slush inside um whereas um whereas solid state is more solid and how how is it um that we're able to you know get that increased density
1: yeah great question i think one of the nicest things about solid state batteries they're much safer so what what lithium ion the, the safety problem it has is called thermal runaway if the battery gets above 150 degrees for any reason, this uh, chemical reaction starts, the hotter it gets, the faster it goes, the more heat it releases, looks like you know an explosion. It's basically a fire. And this is what Tesla had, this is what Boeing had troubles with. Solid state electrolytes eliminate that problem completely. I think that's the biggest feature that's appealing
0: right now. <sighs> All right, well, let's uh, jump into it after, the, after our first break. Um, we're talking with Dr. George Crabtree uh, from the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research. And we're talking about the not so contentious issue of batteries today. Um, I'm Corey Bennett on Unite and Heal America. We'll be right back.
2: As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-4U. That's 844 mlg for you, or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968.
0: We are back on Unite and Heal America talking energy storage, batteries, whether you're on the lithium side of the debate or solid, uh, or or the solid state batteries, we got something for you. Um, Dr. George Crabtree, just before the break, we were talking about um, different types of batteries. I think we mentioned um, the lithium sulfur, and um, I understand there's lithium oxygen as well. Um, How is that different?
1: Yeah, lithium oxygen is maybe the most appealing of the the new batteries. Uh, Why? Because it can achieve a high energy density, which, as we were saying earlier, earlier, means you can pack a lot of energy into a small space, enough for aviation, even. Uh, It operates with two, well, one (laughs) very common element, oxygen. It's everywhere. You don't have to worry about the supply chain. It's inexpensive uh and you can get it domestically uh and uh and lithium which despite the fact that we're going to we're going to have a challenge meeting the need for all the EVs that are kind of going to come out in the next 10 years i mean EV sales are predicted to go up by a factor of 10 by 2030 and that's going to require a lot of lithium so that'll be a challenge but there is enough lithium in the earth to do that and uh so the nice thing about lithium oxygen very lightweight lithium is the lightest metal oxygen you know it's a gas uh the uh and uh, and inexpensive so you could expect that the batteries uh, will cost a lot less than lithium ion does now uh, and that's very appealing so for cars for example the lithium ion battery is maybe of the cost of the car. And if you could get that down by a factor of two, you would make them much more competitive against gasoline cars. That's something that lithium oxygen could do.
0: And so practically speaking, moving away from the lithium ion batteries um, for an electric vehicle, we could achieve um, longer distance, um, longer life, or it could simply just be cheaper and lighter to own an electric vehicle.
1: All of those things. That's why it's so appealing. Uh, and I mentioned the safety issue earlier. Uh, lithium oxygen is likely to be much more safe than uh, than lithium ion.
0: Right. If, if you're if you're not completely sold by being able to drive farther, have longer battery lives, and for cheaper, you know the prospect of not having your car blow up is also a great selling point.
1: No kidding. I love that one
0: so um you um it was a softball sorry um you, you mentioned that there's 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 enough of this stuff um in the earth to, to make to, to meet the demand and so let's let's talk about um how how that's happening and let's talk about the supply chain what kind of challenges are there currently to to shift away towards these more um, efficient types of, uh, of, of batteries
1: well actually the supply chain for lithium ion I think is one of the big drivers for both engineering research and basic science research, looking at the next generation of batteries. The supply chain for lithium ion is incredibly complicated. Comes from all over the world. I think everyone knows that the cobalt in the cathode of a lithium ion battery comes from the Congo, uh, Mm -hmm. like 40, 50, maybe 60% of it comes from there. Uh, It's a country with some human rights issues, for sure, uh, corruption issues rather not deal with that country, but of course we have to, because that's where most of the cobalt comes from. Uh, and the fact that the refining for the lithium ion uh, supply chain, once you, once you mine the materials, is mostly dominated by Asia, in particular by China. So this puts, the, puts Europe and the US way behind in ability to manufacture lithium ion batteries, specifically for the EV market. Uh, And we'd like to find the next generation battery, which has a much simpler, inexpensive, earth abundant, domestically available supply chain. That's one thing that both lithium sulfur and lithium oxygen have. The supply chains are incredibly simple. So I think that may be the top driver right now for uh, next generation batteries is getting away from this, this complicated supply
0: chain. So, so where many of these actual materials come from in um, um, the Congo, um, we have major human rights abuses, and then in, in at the refining stage, uh, China dominates that. So, it puts um, it puts a lot of um, industrialized nations, of um, it poses a, a challenging issue. You know h- how to deal with this ethically, uh, legally? Is that right?
1: For sure. And, but I think both Europe and the U.S. have the resources to go after that problem and, and, and actually uh, win it. For example, in Europe, they started about two or three years before the U.S. did in, in realizing they have to manufacture the battery in Europe. One thing about battery we mentioned earlier, it's a heavy device. So you don't want to be shipping it very far. You don't want to ship it across the ocean from the place that it's made to where you assemble it into a car. And Europe has really taken a, a very strong lead. They have a, a, a gigafactory called Northvolt, which is in the north of Sweden. And the reason it's in the north of Sweden: there's lots of hydropower there. So this Northvolt gigafactory will run completely on renewable electricity. That's a new feature, and most of the batteries, most of the gigafactories in China don't. They run on ultimately fossil fuel, which may, of course, be used to make electricity, but still it's fossil sourced. Uh, And I think that's one huge change for the gigafactories of the future, both in Europe and states. They're going to be run by renewable power. And that gives them, I would say, an enormous advantage over the Chinese gigafactories, simply because many uh, buyers, customers, will like to reduce their carbon footprint. And that will, uh, these renewable power gigafactories will go a long way towards doing that.
0: Do we have advantages here in the United States or in North America in terms of, um, you know, getting um, a- access to the source material or, the, or developing the, the factories um, that maybe China doesn't have?
1: You know, it's a good question. And uh, a lot of the stuff that's going on both in China, well, Europe and U.S., all three places, tends to be a little bit business sensitive and and not talked about a lot. But in principle, yes, we do have both Europe and states have plenty of uh, power. I think it's innovation power. Things like Silicon Valley don't exist in Europe or China. But they do exist here. And a great example of that is Tesla. It's the most successful EV company in the world. And it grew out of the United States, out of the culture here. So it was it got no government subsidies, as other both Europe and, and and China uh do give government government subsidies for battery manufacturing and EV. And here it went through a 10 years, of nobody knew if it would succeed or not. It was losing money hand over fist. Now it's a huge success. So I think that's an example of what can be done. And it depends really on ingenuity and, you know, thinking out of the box, being extremely creative. There's plenty of room for that.
0: And, and while we certainly have um, the technological infrastructure and the brainpower and the innovation um, here, uh, is it the case that... You know, the, this industry from for the United States is still going to depend on getting the materials from abroad or having them refri- refined elsewhere and then bringing them here. That
1: will be the case probably for five years. It takes that long to develop enough gigafactories to really make a difference. Uh, but both Europe and states are on that path. As I said, Europe's maybe a couple of years couple of years ahead of the states. But the states is getting there. Everyone realizes you have to manufacture ideally right next door to where you assemble the car. And uh, that's just a a standard business uh, paradigm. So we we will get there, it's just a question of when.
0: And is, um, is, talking about batteries and and, um, electric vehicles, is, is hydrogen a viable alternative
1: energy source? Well, that's a great question. And of course, hydrogen is getting a lot of attention now You may know that the DOE has something called Earth Shots, which is the analog of a moonshot, except it's for the Earth. Uh, And the first Earth shot is making green hydrogen that is without any carbon emissions uh, at a price that's competitive with, say, natural gas. And that means getting the price down by a factor of four. So lots of people are talking about, especially for heavy duty transportation, why not use hydrogen? It's interesting. You could either burn it as... You know, fossil fuels are usually burned, but with hydrogen, you can have uh, a fuel cell which reacts it electrochemically at a, you know, a a slowed down pace. It's not a fire Uh, and it's very efficient, 60% efficiency. So that's a popular solution for, let's say, long haul trucks, even for some uh, aircraft. And people talk about hybrids. Maybe it's jet fuel to take off a fuel cell to uh, to cruise at altitude and jet fuel to land, which is really an interesting opportunity. But I think we don't know what's going to win. We have to try a lot of stuff to uh, uh, to figure out you know, who's going to win
0: this race. All right. Well, we're here talking with Dr. George Crabtree at the Argonne National Laboratory. Um, We're going to go into our second break. I'm Corey Bennett with Unite and Heal America. We'll be right back.
2: As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844 mlg for you. That's 844-MLG-4U or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968.
0: We are back on Unite and Heal America talking with Dr. George Crabtree. um, And uh, we put a pin on that last conversation um, talking about uh, hydrogen as a possible alternate energy source. Um, But that's not the end of the conversation. You mentioned combustion as well.
1: Yeah, and uh, especially fossil fuels. You know, fossil fuels, they've been around for a couple of centuries they are so versatile, so convenient, so cheap, so uniformly available that we've never thought of any other power source. And until climate change came along and we realized, oh, fossil fuels produce carbon dioxide, that's what's warming the earth. uh, And it's getting to, uh, you know, let's say monumental proportions, growing more every year and every decade. So what's the alternative? and uh, of course burning hydrogen uh that's that's one alternative very popular now getting looked into not as versatile as fossil fuels so with fossil fuels you can have gasoline you can have diesel you can have propane you can have jet fuel uh, you can have uh, natural gas all coming basically from the same car- set of carbon compounds hydrogen doesn't have that flexibility. It's basically one fuel. So it won't be as versatile. And it may be that we need to keep burning fossil fuels, at least for the near term. And by near term, I mean up till, let's call it 2040 or 2050, in order to keep the economy going. So what's uh, what's the alternative? You capture the CO2.
0: You read my mind, I was gonna ask you, how do we survive until 2040 or 50?
1: Yeah, and there's lots of ways you can capture the carbon dioxide. In fact, we mentioned earth shots in the last segment. That's one of the three earth shots now is carbon capture, as it's called. And you can capture it from, say, the output of a a natural gas uh, generation plant for electricity from the tailpipe of a car, although that's pretty difficult, or you can capture it right out of the air, and that's called direct air capture, just from the atmosphere. The problem is it's very dilute in the atmosphere, so you have to find a way to concentrate it as you capture it. But once you do that, you've got some options. So you could put it underground, and it reacts actually with the rocks underground, certain rocks like basalt, and over a number of years, it gets converted into what are called carbonates, which are absolutely stable. They're not going to go anywhere. All the the rocks in the world are basically carbonates, and They've been there for 60 million years. So uh, that's a great way to, in in a sense, to sequester it. But there's another way, too, and that is to take the carbon dioxide, use it as a fuel, as a feedstock. So you react it, for example, with water to make fuels, what would be fossil fuels, but of course, they're artificial fossil fuels. And remarkably, that's exactly what plants do. Photosynthesis is nothing but sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide. That's how we grow our crops. That's how we grow our trees. So uh, there's plenty of precedent for that. It's a question of discovering how to do it cheaply. And I would say over the last two or three years, that's become a huge uh, basic science challenge. How do you do it? We'll, go, we'll take the next step of commercializing it You know, later once we understand it. But that's really a fascinating direction.
0: So the way so the way we get to twenty forty or fifty is uh, to consider these other carbon capture options and to stop uh, cutting down the Amazon. That's
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. The I mean, Amazon is a great uh, a great you know way of capturing CO two from the air. So we do need to stop cutting it down, and we need to look at our agricultural practices too. They actually give us something like. Uh, 15 or 20% of the carbon emissions come from agriculture. And that's not from burning fossil fuels, that's from growing things in the soil. So, and, and mainly the decay of things in the soil. So there are lots of options there. Shifting
0: gears, um, given the current state of technology and where we are with um, shifting away from lithium ion batteries, um, is it is it better for the environment to, um, just use an electric vehicle or hybrid fuel cells, uh, in some cases, better for the environment. From a
1: CO2 emissions point of view, there's no doubt about it. Even if you include the emissions in making the battery, there's a payback time. It's a few years till you're ahead of the game. And of course, if you made the battery with renewable electricity, and didn't produce any CO2, it would be a lot shorter time. And that's, that's the direction we're going. But there's no doubt about that from a climate change point of view, switching to EVs and later the heavy-duty transportation, decarbonizing that, uh, it's the top of everyone's list. That's one of the easiest things we can do.
0: And and what's your sense of the timeline for getting these these more efficient uh, batteries into consumer vehicles?
1: Well, the solid state electrolyte is probably the next big thing that will happen. Um, And of course, it depends on research. It's a little hard to predict. But most people would say five to seven, maybe 10 years is plenty of time to solve the problems and commercialize. And we're getting very close. Uh, And they could start to appear on the commercial market in, let's say, the five to 10 year period. Doesn't mean they would dominate at that time, but they would be out there, kind of like lithium ion is now, a clear, viable alternative. Some of the other batteries, uh, if you talk about lithium sulfur or lithium oxygen, there are more problems to solve. And it might be, and I'll be optimistic here, and of course, the one thing you know about every prediction, Corey, is it's definitely wrong. So I don't mind predicting, because I know something that I say will definitely be wrong. But it might be uh, more like eight to fifteen years before, let's say, lithium oxygen becomes a commercial reality. But uh, the momentum is there, and you know, it's got a, We've got some laboratory work to do, and then we need to get it out of the lab.
0: I was going to say, yeah. W- what are the biggest obstacles left? Is is it is it the research and development? Is it regulatory? Uh, is it something else?
1: Great question. And I think if you talk about transportation, it's probably R&D, not regulatory. Uh, And, you know, once you get a workable prototype in the lab, you've got to make a demonstration of it. And then from that demonstration, actually make a commercial product. They have their own issues, which are different from the R&D issues in the lab. But once they're overcome, at least in transportation, it's going to be taken up very, very quickly, just as the EVs are are taking up lithium ion now. For the electricity grid, it's a different story. There's a lot of regulation. Uh, And in fact, one of the big problems is uh, transmission lines. So in the southwest, where there's plenty of sun, you could have big solar farms that would be very efficient and produce electricity very cheaply from the sun because it's so plentiful but the the market is not there. The market is east of the Mississippi, that's where people live. So you need transmission lines to get it to market. Well, the transmission regulation regime is controlled by the states. So if you're a state that's in between Arizona and let's say Illinois, so the source and the market, and the electricity is just gonna go through your state, but not stop there, you won't approve it, you don't get no benefit from it. And this means that there is a very long waiting time to develop transmission lines. So I think when it kind of there are many other regulatory issues as well. Uh, And of course, historically, what have we made our electricity from fossil fuels? Lots of those utilities are reluctant to take the risk and the expense of converting to, say, renewable. And so it's just kind of a slow process. Uh, but uh, that's a problem we need to solve. And it's very different for the grid, I think than it is for let's say transportation.
0: And so it is it's kind of you know one way trying to get around that regulatory challenge or maybe even some of the political challenge of that is localizing or regionalizing um, the, um, the transmission lines such that uh, you know everyone can get a, get a get a piece of the pie.
1: And, you know, that's happening now. There are lots of proposals out there about how to unblock the transmission uh, challenge. And um, state and interstate are handled differently. So interstate is a federal regulation and, and the state issues are are at the state level. Uh, and and how to get a balance between the, those two. is There are lots of uh, proposals out there. I don't know which one looks the most appealing right now. I think it's a case of let's try a lot of things and see what works and we're going to have to have uh some uniformity there we can't have 50 different regulatory regimes
0: um and and i guess finally on this segment um you know in the in the, sh- in the shift away from lithium ion to some of these alternatives uh, the solid state batteries we're talking about um is there any real um, kind of industry or political opposition to to this development, or um, is, you know, is this something that that even the fossil fuel industry is kind of welcoming to an extent?
1: You know, that's a really interesting question and observation. Um, if you look at the uh, automobile industry, they have fully embraced EVs, and that's happened in maybe the last what three or four years, uh, because they've realized that's the future of business for them. You can't be making fossil cars forever. It just won't work. The public won't put up with it. Governments won't. Climate change is going to get much worse and be on everyone's mind. And they know they have to make the switch. So they're fully on board. And remarkably, it hasn't taken many incentives, government incentives or government sticks uh, to make it happen. They just see the handwriting on the wall not true of some of the other fossil industries manufacturing is a big one where you need a lot of heat and you get heat by burning fossil fuel and very often the fossil fuel is the feedstock for making cement let's say or petrochemicals Uh, and uh, it's it's not that they're opposed to it it's just (laughs) opposed to the change just that we don't know what the change is so it's very very risky uh, and that's where we need some
0: research. All right. Well, we're going to go into our final break. This is Corey Bennett talking with Dr. George Crabtree on the Night and Heal America.
2: As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844 mlg for u That's 844 mlg for u or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968.
0: back for our final segment here on Unite and Heal America Radio. I'm Corey Bennett talking with Dr. George Crabtree, the Argonne National Laboratory, the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research. Um, we've talked a lot today about, um, about the, these change technologies, these innovations, um, the shift away from, from fossil fuels, and about um, the importance of, uh, of doing so before uh, it's too late. Um, we talked about 2040 and 2050, um, and I'm curious, Dr. Crabtree, um, what, what else is there that we should be focusing on to, uh, you know, to advance these technologies?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a wide open field. You talk about decarbonization, which is the word everyone applies to getting rid of the carbon dioxide emissions. And for transportation, we, we sort of know where they come from. Uh, and we know that EVs, at least passenger cars by 2040, some people say 2045, will be largely through the transition. They're going to be mostly EVs. That's about half the transportation emissions. The other half comes from heavy duty, uh, things like long haul trucks and rail uh, shipping and aviation we don't quite know what to do about that i mentioned earlier we have about half the commercial technology we need to decarbonize and in transportation it's said heavy duty stuff uh that we don't have the commercial technology so what do we do fortunately there's time so 2040 2050 that's a long way away 30 years uh and there's there's uh there's time to innovate so uh, i think that's what we need to do i'll give you another example actually from the electricity grid side Uh, this is a company that uh, the joint center spun off in 2017 to specifically look at long what's called long duration storage that means batteries that can discharge for many days at a time instead of just four hours that's what lithium-ion can do so we spun off a company called Forum Energy. They were very good at, at raising money. They raised much more money than Jay Caesar has or will ever have. And they were able to look at uh, lots of chemistries. And they discovered one, it's based on iron and oxygen. You can't think of two more available materials such as simple supply chain. There's iron, it's, it's the most abundant element in the Earth's crust, so every country has it virtually and of course oxygen right out of the air uh and they're they're making a battery they're going to deliver it next year 2023 that can discharge for 4 days in a row at full power way better than it's about 20 times better than what lithium ion can do they did that so 2017 this is 2022 that was 5 years and that shows you what innovation can do when you put your mind to it. And of course they raised a lot of money, as I said, and that that gave them the means, but that's the kind of effort and the kind of entrepreneurial effort that we need to solve the decarbonization problem in the other areas. So we mentioned heavy industry. Uh, I think that's a big one. We don't really know how to decarbonize that yet. Hydrogen could play a role but very likely it's going to be things like, sorry to use this word, electrochemistry, which can actually replace what's called thermochemistry. So instead of burning fossil fuels, you electrochemically convert them into electricity or into other products. You do it at room temperature and you do it with electric fields. You put a volt on, something like that, into the cell. So very modest requirements. And they don't, if you do things electrochemically, they don't produce any CO2. The problem is, of course, it's a brand new science that you have to kind of invent. And then you have to take that science to technology. So it might be five or 10 years out. But there's time for those kinds of innovations to take place. I think that's one of the nicest, let's say, most appealing things about climate change, the timescale.
0: You know, and with, with any of these developments, um, the manufacturing side, is there any sense yet uh, how scaling this technology might impact consumers? Is, is there resistance to a higher cost to the consumer or, you know, the governments are going to have to heavily subsidize to, to, to scale this in a significant way? Boy, that
1: is a great question. You look historically 10 years ago at the cost of solar cells and wind turbines and batteries, those three things. The prices of uh, of solar, wind, and batteries have come down by about a factor of 10 in the last 10 years. And that's due to government, well, it's due to market demand, but government incentives, kind of modest ones, uh, back in the, let's say, late 2000s, early 2010s, Um, Modest government incentives created a market, the market took off, and now we don't need the incentives at all. And it's to the point, I think much lower cost than anyone would have predicted 10 years ago, that EVs are actually competitive with, with fossil cars, fossil fuel cars. So we need that to happen again. And i mentioned the price of hydrogen, there's an earth shot, DOE earth shot to get the price down by a factor of four. That's only half what happened to to solar, wind and batteries. So it seems like it's quite doable Uh, and it can happen to other um, commercial uh, innovations as well. So things that we haven't thought of yet that are going to decarbonize, let's say, heavy duty manufacturing, steel, cement, petrochemicals, things like that. Uh, That's on the way. We really need to incentivize that. You're talking about government or let's say consumer resistance. Yes, the price will be higher initially, that is true. But I think when consumers look around them and see the effect of climate change, such as all the heat waves that are occurring this summer and this spring, In I was reading this morning, Japan in Tokyo, they asked residents to turn off the lights because they weren't sure they'd have enough electricity for the air conditioning. And which would you rather have? Well, I would take the air conditioning. So,, uh, that's a choice consumers will will have to make, and it will be on their minds. So they may not be may not mind quite so much paying a higher, higher price for some of the decarbonized technologies.
0: And so um besides, uh besides uh, calling the members of Congress and asking them to fund the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research through the DOE, um, what other things can our listeners be be thinking about, you know, that they can support now or do now uh, to help make sure that the work you are doing at the laboratory and at the Joint Center, um, you know, can continue to bear fruit?
1: Yeah, great question. And I, I think one of the most important things is to understand the importance of innovation. Uh, I, we mentioned Tesla such a great example. We mentioned the factor of 10 price decreases in solar, wind, and batteries. These things have enormous power. Uh, and we tend to think, oh, the status quo is this is the best it's ever been. Let's not change it. But what lies ahead can be even better. And I think having that realization through experience, such as owning EVs, such as using renewable energy at, at no cost, I know, no cost above fossil, uh, may change consumer consumers' minds. But it's thinking of the future. To me, climate change is a signature problem of the 21st century. It's going to take about half of the century to 2050 to solve it. Maybe it'll take longer. But uh we've got the ingenuity to do it. And I think especially in the states with Silicon Valley and the just uh, the the spirit of invention that has you know historically been very strong in this country that that's what's going to save And we need to look to that for the future. That's my feeling.
0: So that I think teas up a great kind of closing point. Uh, you've said the, the term Earth shot a couple of times. Um, what 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 should our earth shot or shots be in the next 10, 20 years when it comes to developing the technology and transportation or in our in our modernized economies you know that will most impact the environment positively?
1: Well, a great question. And I think DOE is actually considering that right now there are three earth shots. Uh, we mentioned two of them. Uh, one of them is hydrogen. One of them is carbon capture. The third one is long duration storage. But they're DOE is saying there will be more. And I would think industrial decarbonization is a ripe candidate for, for an earth shot. It's big enough. Uh, it's gonna have a huge impact on the business community, also on consumers. Uh, so I, I think that's really important. Agriculture, we don't think too much about it because it's not quite as mechanistic. It's not machines. It's animals and crops, and it's those animals and crops that are in the carbon cycle right now. They're they're contributing emissions instead of storing emissions. We got to figure out figure out how to turn that around. Um, but I think uh, we'll be seeing enormous innovation, and the world in 2040 and 2050 is not going to look like the world now. Much more innovation than we've seen, let's say, in the last 50 years. So, to me, this is, uh, we need to keep thinking and we need to keep being creative. This is what I personally enjoy about my job is seeing all this creativity about me and, uh, and helping, you know, to make it happen.
0: Well, Dr. Dr. Crabtree, I appreciate your time today. Uh, this was a fascinating conversation. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners did. You want to learn more about his work? You can go to the Argonne National Laboratory's website, www.anl.gov. You can search uh, solid-state batteries versus lithium-ion. Just type it into Google and find some good materials. Um, He is an award-winning, very, very decorated and respected individual for uh, for a good reason. And he and the folks at the Joint Center are doing really important work. Appreciate your time today, sir, and uh, good luck.
1: Well, thank you, Corey. What a pleasure. Thanks for the great questions. A very, very productive interview. Thank you. Good.
0: Thanks everyone for listening. This has been Unite and Heal America. I'm Corey Bennett, filling in for Matt Matter. We'll talk to you next time.
2: As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-4U. That's 844 mlg for you or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968.